0: Well, as many of you may know, one of my uh, passions since I was a young child was in learning about war. It's a passion that still exists for me today. I'm still fascinated by it, Uh, although perhaps uh, I don't speak of it in the same way as when I was young and scandalized uh, a tutor that my family had for me who happened to be a Mennonite and a pacifist and she asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up and I said I wanted to be in the army so I could blow people up. And that was, scandalized her enough to tell my parents on me. Uh, but I still have a, an interest in war. And one of the things that is fascinating about war, certainly we live in a time in which war uh, is, has never been more cataloged and never been more documented. The amount of footage that you can find on the current war uh, compared to every other war in the past is, is pretty remarkable. Uh, and yet, it's not simply about the actual uh, bloody conflict, the, the videos that put you in the boots of those experiencing this war, but I've always been fascinated by wartime strategy. If any of you have seen the Ken Burns Civil War videos, despite them perhaps being a little bit dry for other people, I found them fascinating, even the arrows. Then this troop came down there, and they met these, and then there's more arrows. And, you know, eventually, in, in those Ken Burns series, it's more arrows than bullets, pr- pretty much, it, it seems to be. And But I'm fascinated by that sort of thing. And this is a fascination that's not limited to me. There's a, fa- there's a reason that... Uh, The art of war by Sun Tzu is still a widely read thing, even among many people who themselves are not going to war. And so, this is a fascination, as I said, that other people have as well. And when we come to Mark chapter 3, we're seeing, in a sense, uh, a description of a battle, of a battle that Jesus Christ was engaged in. And we each perhaps, are comfortable with the concept uh, with the concept of Christians as soldiers, and onward Christian soldiers, and things of this nature. And when we think of uh, Christianity as soldiery, sometimes we think of it just in an individual capacity. the Christian as a soldier. And we think of it in terms of the armor of God and the discipline necessary for a soldier and the commitment required for a soldier, and certainly all of that is true. And yet, we have here in Mark chapter 3, I think, a description of how to spoil a strong man, how to win a battle against a strong enemy, and then we see this in other parts of Scripture, and yet, I found it interesting in thinking about this, and in looking into this, this is not a topic that I've heard much, uh, much preaching on. And maybe that's because verses 28 and 29 of this chapter, chapter 3, are difficult verses to deal with. Difficult verses to understand. Difficult verses to preach on. Verily I say unto you, Jesus says, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And this is, uh, there are other parts in scripture that have talked about the unforgivable sin, and this is a difficult uh, topic and a difficult thing to get into. And yet, although this passage has been quoted in our country's history by national leaders about a house being divided against itself, uh, something that perhaps is even more uh, pertinent in our present day than at any time in our recent history. What we're reading here is actually Jesus laying out a couple of things for us. And really what he is laying out is in essence a battle plan. I think it would do well for us to understand this because we are called to be soldiers. We are called to be soldiers in the Lord's army and it is incumbent upon us to understand somewhat of the battle plan that we are being called into. And so as we get into this uh, tonight, this, this concept of spiritual warfare, this is the warfare that we are engaged in, that we are called to, uh, let's take some time to, uh, to examine and see what the Lord is saying about what uh, his plan is for us and his desire is for us. Before we get into that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and examine it together. Lord, I can do nothing from this pulpit except through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, none of us can accept or understand and apply this message without your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, be among us tonight, that you would give me the words to say, and that you would give us all an open heart to receive it. In your name, amen. Now, the first thing that you need to understand when you are yeah, there we go the first thing that you need to understand in any battle situation is who your opponent is now I was at uh, the boxing matches last night something I enjoy quite a bit and one of the interesting things about a boxing match for some is just the blood and gore but for others is the scientific aspect of it, which if you are not a fan of boxing, you may struggle to, uh, to ever see. What is there that would make people call this the sweet science of bruising? I see a lot of bruising. I don't see much science or sweetness in it. And yet, some of the greatest battles in boxing history have been between very intelligent opponents, opponents who were engaged in a battle of not just fists, but wills and minds as well. And uh, there was a fight last night, although I am not uh, enough of an expert to say for certain, but a fight last night in, in which it certainly seemed that the battle was lost in the field of strategy as well as the field of actual fistic competition. And that was a situation in which an Argentine with uh, the ability to throw, as they say, punches in bunches. One up against a, uh, a fellow from Puerto Rico who in 18 wins had won all 18 by knockout. And the Argentinian decided to punch with this guy and through three, four rounds, it was okay. And then in the fifth round, he was hit very, very hard right at the end of the round and quit on his stool. He decided he didn't want any more of the punching. and. Uh, I say that it was bad strategy because people who pay much more attention to, than me to the sport and knew these two boxers intimately in their past said, boy, this is an odd strategy to punch it out with a guy who punches this hard. You might want to move around a little bit and try not to get hit in the face. Well, that seems like a good idea to me uh, in any boxing match, but that was a situation in which perhaps one boxer not knowing his opponent and thus not having a well-developed strategy, is, uh, was uh, the loser for it. I don't know if he would have won some other way, but I do know there were a lot of people saying he wasn't going to win the way he picked, and that turned out to be the case. So we need to know our adversary, and what we see in this passage is that Jesus knows his adversary. He knows the strength of his adversary. He says in this parable, he talks about a strong man and a strong man who lives in a house with many goods. And that's something that uh, we need to understand as well. In a sense, in a sense, although this is uh, a God's world, we know that the devil has some sway here. In essence, we are, uh, to some extent, not on home turf. That's something that we as Christians need to understand. Something we as Christians sometimes lose sight of, number one, living in a nation with Christian roots and Christian culture, and living in a nation in which Christians have been very comfortable for a long time. It's easy to forget that we are uh, pilgrims and strangers in this land. And that we are not only pilgrims and strangers, but we are on enemy territory, as it were. We are attempting to come in, as Jesus did, into the strong man's house and steal his goods, spoil his goods. Not steal in, a, in the, the negative sense, perhaps reclaim. We are coming, attempting to come into Satan's house and remove souls that he is attempting to take for his prize that are in his house already. That is our desire. That is what we are come to do. That is what we are called to do. That's something that's very important for us to understand. It's also very important for us to understand, of course, that in fact it is Satan who is our enemy. It is uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Against principalities and powers the very word principal, words principalities and powers again alert us to the fact that we are going on to, uh, almost the uh, kingly uh, territory of some ruler and of course we know that that is how the devil is described he's the ruler over not just the powers of wickedness but he's in many sense uh, many senses the ruler of the culture that makes up this world. When we think of our enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil, we have the devil there. We believe that the devil is actually a being, not some vague uh, metaphysical sense, but an actual being. And then the world of the flesh cover a whole lot of other ground. The flesh is everything within us, and the world is everything without us. They're the pressures uh, externally, the culture externally, and internally. And this is what we are come to fight. We're not come to fight uh, human beings. We are coming to fight Satan. It's mentioned here in verse 23. Jesus came, and what he was doing when he was casting out devils, he was casting out Satan. He was coming to strike a blow against Satan. That is what he was come to do. That was his desire. And of course, he, he was uh, beset by a variety of human beings. He was beset by human beings. His friends, his friends went out to lay hold on him. This is the actual term that was also used when uh, the uh, servants of the high priest laid hold on him in the garden. It's the same terminology. His friends are trying to hold him back. We see his disciples Uh, in verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, even his disciples were holding him back. And of course, the scribes come down from Jerusalem. They're coming to attempt to stop him. They're accusing him of casting out devils by the prince of devils. And so he has a lot of human opposition, and yet, what is his fight against? His fight is against Satan. And he... He engages in some mockery here. If, in fact, I were on behalf of Satan, why would I be fighting against Satan? Why would I be fighting against devils? Why would I be casting out devils? This is uh, uh, an example here of uh, just the simple and straightforward truth that the people who were arrayed against Jesus were attempting their best to ignore. They didn't want to understand this. They didn't want to focus on this because, in fact, it would uh, bring in some uncomfortable truths that they would have to wrestle with, such as why was Jesus having these great spiritual victories if he was, in fact, serving Satan? But we know that Jesus was come to do battle, and he was come uh, to do battle against Satan. Jesus himself said it: he came not to bring peace but a sword, and uh, not a physical sword. The weapons of our warfare are not uh, carnal, they're spiritual. And when uh, actual sword, an actual sword was employed to, to attempt to attempt, uh, protect Jesus, uh, Jesus told him to put up that sword. So we see the enemy here. It's the devil, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, but it's, it's Satan. It's his kingdom. We are attempting to go into his kingdom and fight with Satan. And for what purpose? First, you need to understand the enemy. You want to need to understand the enemy's capabilities. Satan is strong. You need to understand the enemy's location all around us. You need to understand all of these things. And then you also need to understand the mission. You need to understand why you are fighting, what you are attempting and hoping to achieve. And we, are, we see here what Jesus lays out. He is attempting to enter Satan's house and spoil his goods. Now, what is... Uh, what is part of that mission? It's binding the strong man. Now that's an important thing for us to remember as soldiers, is that we are not going to be successful against the devil ever, one-on-one. It's, it's a no-chance situation. The devil is more powerful than us. He's more wily than us. He will always defeat us if we are attempting to take him on in our own strength and in, with our own weapons. It's absolutely an impossibility. And so the strong man must be bound in order for his uh, kingdom, his house, to be spoiled. This is what our desire is. Our desire is to achieve victories over Satan. Because what what do we see of with this spoiling of the devil's house, of Satan's kingdom? We know the ultimate end. And that's a blessing for us. That's something we ought to hold on to. That's something we ought to uh, think about and meditate on on occasion. That our battle, ultimately, the battle of the side that we are on, the army that we are part of, that we are soldiers in, our side will eventually be victorious. And yet, it's also important that even if we know we are eventually going to win, that with each uh, battle that we face, that we do so with that ultimate end in mind. Our, uh, our ultimate end is, like Jesus Christ, to assist in spoiling the house of the devil, of taking goods that he think belong to him, the souls of those who are born into sin in this life. And so we need to understand the mission. Now, again, understanding the mission is sometimes a little bit difficult. Just as the disciples at times misunderstood the enemy, they sometimes as well misunderstood the mission. They misunderstood the, uh, and when they misunderstood the mission, they misunderstood the enemy. When they began to believe that Jesus was come to bring a heavenly kingdom on earth, to bring about the uh, resurrection not of the spirits of men, but the resurrection of the Davidic kingdom, the casting out of the hated Romans, then it would be easy to see the Romans as an enemy. I learned a a fact this week uh, that was uh, quite fascinating to me. I can't speak for certain if it's true, but it's certainly something that would make sense, which was that the Roman Empire in occupying Judea uh, generally did not use Roman legions because by the time of Caesar Augustus, they were generally, the Roman, actually Roman soldiers, were not in great supply. A lot of the Romans were farming out their legions and using uh, people from, that had been raised from other, uh, other nations. And so this uh, history uh, that I was listening to suggested that during this time, uh, many of the Roman soldiers, if not perhaps most of the Roman soldiers, were in fact not Romans but Samaritans. It brings into uh, a, a greater a greater uh, picture of why there was so much ire between uh, the Judeans, the Jews, and the Samaritans. Uh, uh, it presents a clear picture. Uh, fascinating stuff. But it would be very easy if you're thinking that your enemies are the Romans, to see the Roman soldiers as the enemy. If you think your, uh, your enemies are the high priests, to think the high priests and their servants are the enemy, and to use your sword accordingly, as I've mentioned before. This was something that uh, the people in Judah, the people in Jerusalem, were very much feeling at this time. They were very much feeling that they were wrestling against flesh and blood, that they were fighting. And it would have been very easy to think that way because they were actually being oppressed. They had actually been subjugated. They were being unfairly taxed. They were being, uh, the worship of the true God, Jehovah, was being gradually undermined by images of Caesar being placed into town, of temple gold being taken from the treasury, eventually uh, of the desecration of the temple itself. It would be very easy to look at this and say the Romans truly are the enemy. Everything that the Bible, of the, the word of God has said is evil. <laughs> the Romans are exemplifying. It would be very easy to think of that and look at that as the enemy. And then if you think of that as the enemy, then the mission is to get rid of the enemy. Or if you think the mission is to uh, have a kingdom on earth, the enemy is those who are resisting that kingdom. And Jesus is saying something much much deeper. And then we get to a question of, there's the mission and the enemies, we need to understand those things, but what are the uh, weapons and tactics we have at our disposal and that we're going to use? And it's here that we get into a, a truly revolutionary idea, something that Jesus is speaking in a parable here. And when he spoke in parables, we know that people found it very difficult to understand. Sometimes people still do. But what is he saying here? I think it's uh, explicated a little bit uh, in more depth in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, we uh, hear uh, a similar uh, thing from Jesus, starting in verse 17. Well, let's start in... uh, uh, verse 14. And he was casting out a devil and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, and others tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he knowing their thoughts said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. What Jesus is saying is that he came to overcome the strong man. Now, what did I say before? This is a, a truth that we often forget and that we forget to our peril. If we take on the devil one-on-one, we will lose. And what that meant was, and we see this set forth more in the New Te- later in the New Testament, was that under the law, there was no power... To overcome the devil in one's own life in any way that brought freedom. Now, that's not to say that, uh, and we can get into the law and grace in some other sermon series, but certainly what we know is that Jesus came to bring victory over sin and death and Satan. That's what Jesus came to do. And Jesus, in his time on earth, gave uh, human be- uh, beings the ability to have the strong man bound. That is something that became available to us that was not available beforehand. And so the weapon that we have available to us is in fact stronger than our adversary. That's a good position to be in. If you have better weapons than your adversary, you're in a good position. Uh, it- it's fascinating to Think about the fact that up until maybe 500 years ago, you could compare armies from the last 2,000, 3,000 years of recorded human history. You could p- compare the, the the armies of Alexander the Great to the Norman invasion. Who would win? What about the longbows versus this and the cavalry of the Persians versus And you could compare all of these things because the technology, although it advanced in certain ways, didn't advance enough that you could overcome some of these things. And then starting certainly in the late 19th century and gathering great speed through the early 20th century, the scientist became the one who decided in many ways, who won wars. Technology uh, took such leaps and bounds that you could not say that any even the greatest World War I en- army could beat a World War II army, could not beat a Korean War army, could not beat a Vietnam War army, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, massive change in technology and weapons technology specifically uh, led to a great change in power and a weapons uh, arms race. And I think this perhaps best exemplified with nuclear weapons. We are seeing uh, the specter of nuclear war raised again And we are seeing people or countries start to race to try to get nuclear weapons again. There was a time in which they thought it was not necessary. We had a Pax Americana. And now perhaps there are countries that are saying maybe it would be good to have nuclear weapons. Why? Because nuclear weapons have proven to be powerful both in terms of actual explosive detonation quality but also in terms of the the psychological warfare on a level that we have never seen before. Weaponry is a very, very important thing. And we have the ultimate weapon available to us. A weapon that makes us uh, overpower compared to our enemy. uh, A weapon and ally that is so powerful that we need not fear our adversary at all the Bible says that no it's so fascinating to see this that we are arrayed us as small human beings with very little perhaps ability to change much of anything around us perhaps even uh, no real ability to enforce our will over our circumstances in any meaningful way and yet if we are believers we have access to an ally and to a weapon in which we can say to uh, a, a fiend who has been bedeviling humanity, literally, since humanity was around, and we are able to stand up to him and make him flee. And that, of course, is the Holy Spirit. This is what I think is necessary for us to understand in terms of verses 28 and 29. There are some people who become very concerned whether they've said a word or they have with an action committed an unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. I think it can be a worthwhile exercise to think about in what ways. Certainly if we are warned against a sin that uh, somebody who commits it is in danger of eternal damnation, it's something for us to take seriously. Yet I think in context, what this is saying is just very straightforward. The Holy Spirit is uh, not simply some sort of hypothetical force. The Holy Spirit that indwells us is a being, it is God, and it is the, uh, uh, gives us the ability to fight against the wiles of the devil. And those who say that spirit is an evil spirit, those who blaspheme against the spirit are in danger of eternal damnation. Now, what is that danger? What is that danger? Well, the Holy Spirit is also the only way to be right with God. Only the acceptance of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be sanctified and to live a holy life. Resistance to that, rejection of that, is, of course, by its very nature, if you believe in salvation, danger of eternal damnation, because you are rejecting the only possibility of salvation. And so we, we read about this, uh, these weapons that are available to us, and when we read about uh, the sword of the Spirit and the other things available to us, the, uh, the Word of God, the other things that we use in our mission for God, it's important for us to understand that anything that we're able to do is only possible because our ally has achieved a victory, has gone before us and achieved a victory. We are arrayed against the world, but be of good cheer, Jesus has overcome the world. That is what we are, uh, are comforted by as we go into battle. Now, there's a third as- or fourth aspect to this. We need to understand our enemy. We need to understand our mission. We need to understand our weapons that are available to us. It's also useful for us to understand our allies, to understand our allies. We are seeing, again, in the present day, uh, a lot of interesting things in the, uh, in the military, Uh, realm, in terms of individual battles, one-on-one, people, individual people, videos of them fighting, of tactics, of technology, of weapon systems and changes, of grand strategies. We're seeing a lot of this, and we're also seeing one of the most important and least talked about uh, from a military's perspective, important things in military history, which has been diplomacy. I, I was listening to a podcast about the Persian Empire. And what they talked about that was fascinating was that the Persians realized at a certain point that they weren't going to be able to beat the Greeks in, on the Greeks' home turf with uh, infantry against infantry. And so the Persians ended up getting a lot of victories over the Greeks in a much smarter way which was hiring the Greeks to fight the other Greeks. Dividing the Greeks, playing them expertly against each other, and achieving victories in that way. And understanding and making allies and weakening foes in that way, removing allies from foes and making them your friends, is an important part of any battle and of any warfare. And when we come to this passage, what we find is something fascinating. Jesus is saying, listen, I am come to spoil the house of the strong man. I'm come to strike a great victory against the enemy of God and also the enemy of humanity. I have come to strike uh, a a victory that is, in fact, cataclysmic to the devil, that puts paid to any opportunity he has to conquer anyone who takes advantage of that victory. He he says these things, and then there's a little, little confusion as to who his allies are. And it's a confusion that we can have as well. Because we see that his disciples aren't always his allies. Certainly, we see in terms of Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, that he was actually at a certain point became his mortal enemy while wearing the mask of a friend but all of his all of his human allies were were not much help when it came time to pray they were snoozing they actually told him at various points you shouldn't be you shouldn't be fighting this battle that will lead to your great victory he had to say get thee behind me satan we see even here that his friends we're trying to physically lay hands on him because they were like, boy, he's 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 really screwing up here. He is beside himself, he's out of his mind, he is out of his head. These are his his friends. now what would he see? What do we see at the end of this passage? He has multitudes around him. He is preaching the gospel. What did he come to do? He came to preach the gospel to people, that was one of his missions, and he gets word, hey, your family has to talk to you. Now what are, they, what are the people giving this message, and what are ultimately the family trying to do? What are they doing in this situation? They're calling Jesus away from the battlefield. They're calling him away from the work he is supposed to be doing with a distraction. Now, is it bad to have families? Is it bad to spend time with families? Certainly not. But certainly at this time, we know for certain that it was God's will that Jesus continued to speak to these people because Jesus did that. It's, it's a pretty easy thing for us to, uh, if we believe in Jesus's sinless perfection as we ought in reading the scriptures, we're able to look at this and say, they were calling him to something that he didn't need to do. And he specifically said this. They said, your mother and your brethren are here. Now, his mother and his brethren, although certainly uh, are are admirable in many ways, although we know that certainly at some point, some of his brethren did not believe in him. But we know that his mother and uh, brothers, despite what others say, were certainly not sinless, were not perfect. They were capable of uh, actually being not helpful. And so when they called him away, hey, hey, come out of there, we need to talk to you. Perhaps, although it's not specifically stated, perhaps to give him a little talking to, you know, Jesus, we've been hearing a little something. We've been hearing that you are beside yourself. People are saying, (laughs) all the people are talking, they're saying you're beside yourself. And actually, the most important people of the day have come down from Jerusalem with the message that you're casting out devils by Beelzebub. We don't know what the message was. But certainly it would have to be something that the family believed was important to call him out during this time to not just wait until he was finished. And Jesus has no time. He says, who is my mother and my brethren? Behold my mother and my brethren for whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. This is what Jesus is saying as to who his allies are. Now, this does not mean that Jesus did not still have responsibility to his family. does not mean that Jesus did not still treat his family the correct way. This is not a call to abandon your family necessarily. Certainly, uh, Jesus made uh, appropriate uh, provision for his mother, even on the cross, it was on his mind. This is not anything of that nature. And yet, Jesus did say that he came uh, not to bring peace, but a sword to divide families. Jesus was saying that my brothers and sisters, the closest people to me, my allies, the people on my side, are very simply those who do the will of God. In other words, those who do the will of my Father. The Father's business that Jesus, from a very early age, knew that he was meant to be about. And this is something, as Christians, we need to take into account as well. Certainly, I don't think there's any reason to believe that Jesus ever was flummoxed by Judas Iscariot. He knew who he was and what he was about. And yet, I don't think there's any reason to believe that any of the disciples were on to Judas Iscariot. I think based on what Peter did or attempted to do in the garden, I can't imagine if Peter had known what Judas was up to that Judas would have managed to get uh, away and uh, get that, uh, that uh, betrayal accomplished. The disciples were flummoxed. They didn't know who their allies were, but Jesus did. In fact, the disciples at various other points said, there are people casting out devils. And Jesus said, whoever's not uh, against us is for us. The disciples had a lot of difficulty discerning who their enemies were, who their friends were, what the tactics were, what the weapons were, what the enemy was. And it's very easy for us in looking back in scripture where it's laid out for our understanding to look at that and say, boy, what gullible fools. What idiots, how could they not realize and not see all of the ways in which we ourselves can fall short in any of these areas. And this is why it's so important to spend a lot of time in Scripture, but not just in time in Scripture in terms of reading it as a historical document, in terms of reading it for curiosity, in terms of reading it out of duty, but reading it with the Holy Spirit. Because just as we are attempting with our Savior to go into the house of the strong man and bind the strong man and spoil the goods, the devil is working, attempting to work in our heart to get us to lock the Holy Ghost in a cupboard, and then when the strong man is not resisting the devil, to steal the goods right back. That is something that we need to be understanding as well. And the way that we understand it is by growing in the Spirit. The way we understand it is by spending time in the Word, by allowing the Word to inform us, uh, as, as uh, uh, explicated to us by the Spirit, in preaching, in teaching, in, in study, in prayer, even in s- hymns and songs, and to grow in that grace. Because, again, this uh, thing that is laid out here Jesus talking about uh, going into Satan's house and stealing the goods, uh, binding the strong man. This mission, this uh, armed mission that we are involved in, is the most important mission that we can possibly be engaged in. And we know that because God came to earth and refused to be distracted by all of the things that distract us. He refused to be distracted by so many of the distractions that lead us astray. He refused to be turned aside from the mission that was set before him. And so, as we go forward in this week, tonight, we're going to have a battle against the wicked one. I don't know what form it's going to take. It's going to be different for each one of us. But we're going to have a battle against the wicked one. Tomorrow morning, when we wake up, we're going to have a battle against the wicked one. Throughout the day, we're going to, and every day for the rest of our life or until the Lord calls us home. And so therefore, it's incumbent upon us, as laid out in the Scripture, to understand all of these aspects about being a soldier in the Lord's army. But it is also incumbent upon us to understand the great truth that the victory has already been won for us. We still need to, we still need to fight we still need to arm ourselves, we need to, still need to be courageous, but we know that our uh, great ally is uh, one who fights for us and who has already overcome our enemy. So as we go forward, let's go forward with that knowledge, with that hope, with that faith, and with a renewed understanding of who we're fighting against, what we're fighting with, and who is on our side.